We're going to read chapter 1 in its entirety, then the first four verses of chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. So if you want to follow along. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. The Lord's reply, look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. The prophet's second question Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time But at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. And then in Habakkuk 3, starting with verse 16. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to, his, to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Please be seated. If you would, join me in a word of prayer. 
as we begin our study in, in the Word this morning. Father, we have gathered here together in your name to worship you. And we have set aside all the cares of this life to meet together in the name of Jesus this morning. Father, as your word goes forth, pray that you would teach us to number our days aright. Set our affections upon things of eternity. Help us to see above the earthly troubles and challenges that we face, that we might walk as you've called us to walk. And remind us today, Father, that you're our strength and that nothing is too difficult for you. We thank you for being our rock, our holy one, who reigns over all. And Lord, we can rejoice in knowing that you are in control. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, who is our rock, our strong tower, we pray these things. Amen. Anyone here ever had any big questions for God? Some big questions? Okay, there's a couple of you that, yes, I've had a couple big questions for God. There are some big questions that people are asking today. While no doubt this is, this is not an, an exhaustive list, there are, these are probably some of the bigger questions, perhaps, that some are asking why does God allow evil to happen? If God is such a good and holy God, how could he seemingly just watch wickedness happen every day? Or maybe from a more personal standpoint, how long is God going to let me stay in my current situation? Are you there, God? You know, every day all around us, there are major news stories, most of which centers on bad news, right? Bad news. I don't watch the news, but what I can remember of watching the news, there was very seldom anything good on there. It was all pretty bad, gloomy stuff. Someone was killed. Someone cheated on their taxes. Someone cheated on their spouse. Someone said something about someone else. And boy, in our social media, internet wired world today, even what someone says about someone else is news. Nations are fighting, nations, morals and values have plummeted, modesty is in sharp decline. Couples are okay living together outside of marriage. Marriage is being questioned today like never before. The thought of one man and one woman, God's original plan, has turned into an antiquated model that's juxtaposed with today's culture. Government can't seem to get along. Some judges now stray from being judges and opt to legislate instead. Truth has vanished. What was deemed wrong a few generations ago is no longer wrong, for there is no truth for many today. Things today are relative. They're pragmatic. We do what works. And this truth standard seems to be a moving target. We live in a day where people can actually hijack commercial airliners. Steer them into big buildings thinking it serves a just cause. We live in a day where pornography is big business. Billboards, TV, internet, it's everywhere. We live in the midst of a culture that's consumed more with her economy status than her salvation status. We live in the midst of a largely fear-based culture. You remember back in, if you were here, around the turn of the century in 1999, 2000, you remember the big fear, the big scare, the millennium was coming. People were going out and doing all kinds of things. 
Not too many years ago, there was another fear that swept across the nation when the stock market hit, crashed. There's been an ongoing fear in light of terroristic activity. There's a fear now, and one of the latest and greatest is this Ebola threat. We live in the midst also of an entertainment, me-focused, self-saturated society that for the most part is nowhere near to the heart of God. And so when we take all of these things together, it's really not a pleasant state of affairs around us, is it? With all that's going on, have you ever unleashed one of those big questions on God? Have you ever cried out to Him with a why? Or how long, Lord? Or, or what are you doing, Lord? How could you let this happen? If you've ever voiced any of those questions or perhaps ever thought any of those questions, the text today, I believe, is going to deal with such questions. Habakkuk is a prophet of God to the people of Judah. He prophesies on the heels of Nahum. We spoke of Nahum last week. During the days of Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, his burden, it's a burden, chapter 1, verse 1, this is the burden, the oracle, which the prophet Habakkuk saw. His burden seems to fit in the context following the reign of Josiah and in the early years of King Jehoiakim, around 609 B.C. Now, historically, it's important to understand some context of what's going on. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, we talked about that last week just a bit, Nineveh falls in 612. Assyria then moves its capital to Haran. Haran gets destroyed and about a year or two later. They move the capital once again to Carchemish. And eventually we see from history that Assyria is going to fade off the world empire map following their defeat at Carchemish. Well, en route to helping the Assyrians, Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt, he comes through territory that's owned by Judah. And Josiah, who's king at the time, Josiah goes out to meet him. And you might recall the story. Josiah goes out to meet him and Necho says, Hey, Josiah, I'm just passing through. You don't need to be coming up against me. And Josiah goes up against him anyway. Josiah ends up dying in the battle that's called the Battle of Megiddo. He dies. Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, is placed as king. And he remains in place for some three years before the king of Egypt then deposes him, takes him back to Egypt. At this point in time, Egypt is being paid tribute by Judah. Judah lost. They're paying tribute at this particular point in time. It wasn't long, though, before the king of Egypt placed Jehoiakim, that's Jehoahaz's brother, as king over Judah and Jerusalem. Necho takes Jehoahaz back with him to Egypt. Jehoiakim, from the scriptures, it says, he reigned 11 years, from about 609 to 598. That's about the time frame we're talking about here with Habakkuk. Jehoiakim. So when you read about Jehoiakim, you see that the Bible says that Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Fits the context. And with the change in world powers going on at this time, we know from the Battle of Carchemish, Babylonia, the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians and the Egyptians. King Nebuchadnezzar then comes into town. He binds up King Jehoiakim, takes him prisoner to Babylon. Jehoiachin steps up. He's an 18-year-old and he serves as king of Judah for a whopping three months and ten days. Until King Nebuchadnezzar comes back into town, takes him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar then sets up Zedekiah, Jehoiachin's brother. He's the next king. He's going to reign for 11 long years of witnessing siege and conflict and exile. So in the course of those final years of captivity, there's a prophet named Habakkuk who prophesies to Judah. 
This prophecy is unique in that it stands as really the only book where there's this running dialogue between one man and God. Habakkuk is a question and answer book. Habakkuk has questions. Perhaps you too have questions this morning of God. I hope and pray we learn something about Habakkuk's approach to questioning God. The Lord is going to reveal himself to Habakkuk, but really, truly, the Lord reveals himself to all of us who have the book open this morning. I believe Habakkuk is writing shortly after Josiah's death, during the reign of wicked Jehoiakim. His questions are real in light of the trouble that's going on around him in Judah. He sees that things aren't quite right on the home front, in his own land, among his own people, as well as in the surrounding nations. The people of God are in danger and Habakkuk sees it. Or should I say he's enabled to see it. He's more than concerned. He seems to be here at the outset worried. You ever been worried about something? You ever been someplace in your life and, and wor- you're, you're worrying about What might happen? There are some folks, and maybe you're one of them this morning, as you sit here, as you hear this. There are some people who automatically think of worst case scenarios. Are you one of those people? You think of the, what's the worst possible thing that can happen? And you carry that around. It's it's something, it's a worry. There's a fear. Habakkuk is worried about the state of affairs all around him. He's troubled in spirit about his homeland and what's happening in his homeland. I mean, listen to his initial line of questioning here in verses 2, 3, and 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There's strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. You see, Habakkuk's heart cry is centered on his weighty situation that's staring him right in the face. In his homeland, he sees nothing but injustice. Violence is going on all around him. The people are plundering, they're contending, they're striving against one another. The law of the land is non-existent. It sounds like Habakkuk has got it pretty bad. And listen to his questions. How long shall I cry and you will not hear? Lead you to believe he's been crying for some time here to the Lord. How long? How long shall I point out to you, Lord, violence going on? Look, look, look what's going on. And why? God, why? Why do you show me iniquity? Why are you setting me in in this place to see trouble all around me? You ever been where Habakkuk is? You ever cried out to the Lord about your situation? Wondering how long? How long is this going to last, Lord? Ever wondered why the Lord has you in the middle of what appears from your perspective to be a giant mess? The Lord answers Habakkuk in verses 5 through 11. Just reading a few of those verses, he says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. A bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Sounds like a wonderful people you'd like to meet. They're terrible and dreadful, says the Lord. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. They all come for violence. They deride every stronghold. Verse 11 says he commits offense ascribing this power to his God. So they're following other gods. They uphold other gods. And yet God is going to raise up this group of people. 
Can we agree that the answer from the Lord here in the text is not really an answer to Habakkuk's questions? <laughs> Can we agree with that? Can we see that in the text? Habakkuk seems to be asking, when's all this going to stop? And the Lord says, you'll never believe what I'm about to do, Habakkuk. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come and wreak additional havoc and violence on my own people. Habakkuk, about at this point, is, is probably wondering what... What, what is it that God has for him in the midst of the trouble and adversity that's currently facing him? And the Lord says, get ready. More trouble is coming, Habakkuk. Habakkuk's initial questions then give rise to another set of questions at this point. But I want you to notice, starting in verse 12, that his questions come with some foundational understanding of who the Lord is. This is important. He says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. He says, we shall not die. That's instructive. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? Verse 17, shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? (laughs) This next set of questions comes from what Habakkuk knows of the Lord his God. He recognizes God is from everlasting. He recognizes that God is holy. And as bad as things are, he even comes to the conclusion that we shall not die. He believes the Lord isn't going to totally abandon them completely. But the Lord's raising up of the Babylonians does cause some fundamental concerns for the prophet. How is it that a holy God would raise up these wicked Babylonians to triumph over his own people. His own people who are more righteous than these folks. There's a comparison going on in there. More righteous than these folks. Oh God, why would you do such a thing? Why are you making us such an easy catch? I believe Habakkuk would be the first to acknowledge the sins of his own countrymen. But the thought that God would use such a pagan nation to plunder Judah was difficult, I believe, for Habakkuk to swallow. He probably had some knowledge of the Babylonians in light of their recent victory at Carchemish. And the ones who had now defeated Assyria and Egypt are the ones that are being raised up by God to possess the dwelling places in Judah. The tough situation is about to get worse, it seems. And, you know, you arrive at the end of Habakkuk chapter 1, and you might be inclined to pause and and reflect on what's just happened. You might say, Lord, it's just not fair to allow this to happen. Or how could such a thing like this happen to God's people? I believe the biblical text, as we look and study the biblical text, it helps us see what is happening to Judah. It's absolutely just. No injustice is being done to God's people. Listen to the testimony of the scripture for just a moment. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Kings. This gives us some very important information on the situation. I'll begin in 2 Kings 21. This is during the reign of Manasseh. Verse 10, the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. If you flip over to chapter 24, This is getting to be near the end, near the complete fall of Judah. 
This was in the days of Jehoiakim, chapter 24. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar came up. Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him, listen to this, sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, bands of the people of Ammon, these wicked people. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets, Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight. Why? Because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. And also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. So the Babylonians are being raised up due to the sins of the leader of the land, it seems. His sins, his shedding of innocent blood was something, according to the scripture, that the Lord would not pardon. And now the consequences of his sins are being meted out against the nation of God's people. Is God just? Is he fair? Is he, is he, is he right to punish the whole lot of his people for the sins of a wicked king? See, when we look at the text, we see that there is truly just cause for God doing what he's doing. Once Habakkuk concludes his questioning in chapter 1, I want you to notice what he does next. I want you to watch what he does. Notice where he goes. Take inventory of his next steps with the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. Now, rampart, a watch tower, was typically built for one of two reasons. In the day, they would build one of these near a grain field or the crops so that they could see if there were any enemy prowlers coming on the scene to try and take the food and the crops. But they would also have, we probably are most familiar with the watchtower, to be able to rise above, to be able to look out and see if there were enemies coming in from afar. Habakkuk, after questioning the Lord in chapter 1, takes his place as a watchman. He's going to stand watch. On the watchtower. In other words, he's going to wait for the Lord's response. He's going to watch and see what he will say to him. Now, I believe there's some instructive principles right here for each of us. When the Lord speaks, and we'll see this in just a moment, he's going to bring clarity on the situation. The Lord, when he speaks, brings clarity on the situation. Sometimes you need to remove yourself from the normal activity of life to hear from the Lord. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. He's going to watch for the Lord. This might for us include and involve Times, specific times of prayer. Times set apart to hear the Lord. When we have questions, are we setting ourselves in a place where we can hear from Him? Are we desiring to hear from Him? Hearing from the Lord requires patience and waiting. I will stand my watch. Are you persistent and persevering in your prayers? I believe we also learn here in this verse that anticipate hearing from the Lord. He says, I'm going to watch to see what he's going to say to me. 
Is there truly a desire to hear from the Lord? Or have you already made up your mind about your situation and just simply want God's approval on what you have already come up with? And then there's this idea of allowing the Lord to correct you as necessary and respond then in humility to his correction. Isaiah says his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. Notice he says, I'll see what I will answer when I am corrected. (laughs) You see, because Habakkuk understands he's God. He's, He's God. I'm not. And so when he speaks, surely I have it all wrong. God's going to correct me. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, it's a wonderful passage about God's corrective discipline. And do you know why he disciplines you and me? He does it, the Bible says, so that we can be partakers of his holiness. His discipline may seem painful at the time. But later on, having been trained by it, what's it produce? A harvest of righteousness. Notice there's the worry, the weight of your circumstance. We see that in chapter 1. And then here at the beginning of chapter 2 is this transition from waiting and worrying. This weight of the problem and the worry transitions to watching in a different kind of waiting. Not wait, W-E-I-G-H-T, but waiting, W-A-I-T. He's watching and he's waiting on the Lord. And you know, in chapter 2, verse 2, the very next verse, the Lord is speaking. And he continues to speak throughout the remainder of that chapter. You know, when you draw near to him, when you are watching and waiting for him and you draw near to him, the Bible promises that he's going to do what? Draw near to you. The Lord has given his word today that we might hear what he has to say and then exercise obedience to what he has to say. Look at 2, 2 through 4. The Lord answered me. The Lord answered me. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk is called to write the vision, to make it plain on tablets, to clearly communicate the very things the Lord is showing him. The vision is yet for an appointed time, the text says. Could very well be pointing to the arrival of the Babylonians coming to town. The vision will speak. It will not lie. The word of the Lord can be trusted. Though the things described in the vision have not yet happened, Habakkuk is told to wait. Though it currently tarries, wait for it. It's coming and it will not tarry too long. Wait. We live in a society today that doesn't like to wait. We don't like to wait. Notice verse 4. Contrast the proud and the just. In fact, chapter 2 continues speaking about this proud person. Lord issues five woes. Woe. You know, when you hear the woe and Jesus speaks about the woes in the Gospels, hold on, that's bad news. Well, you better listen. There are five woes right here in the text in chapter 2 about this proud person. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. But I'd like to look specifically at the just. The just shall live by his faith. Now, I'd like you to stay with me as we work through this because this is so very important and instructive for us. I would imagine as you see that phrase, the just shall live by his faith, that probably rings a bell for many of you. The just shall live by his faith. You've probably heard that one before. Let me walk you through three passages that I believe are helpful to piece together this passage in Habakkuk. 
The first one is Romans. If you turn to the book of Romans. And what I'd like to do is piece together three parts to that verse. The just shall live by his faith. The just, Romans 1.17 says, for in it, that's the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. Here it is. The just shall live by faith, Romans 1.17. Now Romans as a book, Romans keys in on how one through the gospel of Jesus Christ can become just. Another word we could interchange with just would be righteous. How does one become righteous? Romans speaks to that in a great way. The only way one moves from being unrighteous to righteous is through the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. In Romans, Paul describes that we have all sinned, all of us. We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And yet he also says that God is just and he is the justifier of the one who has what? Faith in Jesus Christ. And the way we become righteous is through a perfect righteous Savior. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. But the just shall live by his faith. Turn to Hebrews for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Begin reading in verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Listen to this promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Sounds like something I just read in Habakkuk. Except the Hebrew writer here, what's he do? He says, yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. He's using and pointing this to the one who is yet to come. Speaking from Habakkuk's day, Habakkuk is writing before the arrival of Jesus Christ, is he not? Interesting to see that here. Verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, Hebrews is speaking to the element of faith. The just shall live by his faith. Right? These verses in Hebrews, they come as a precursor to that great faith chapter. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. The gallery of faithful men and women adorn the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Faith is confidence in Christ in what he has accomplished and what he's finished and what he said he will do. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 verse 6 that without faith, it is impossible to what? Please the Lord. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently, those who diligently seek him. Remember that faith is not simply an intellectual exercise. Ah, I believe. Remember James says the demons believe and they tremble. Paul speaks of being justified by faith alone. But let's not forsake faith to the realm of academia. Faith is active. Faith shines brightly through your works. Faith is put on display through a life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. A witness that is always pointing others to the goodness of Jesus Christ. The just shall live by his faith. But we see Galatians 3.11 adds one more element to this. Galatians 3 verse 11 he says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. See, Galatians was written to a group of churches in the region of Galatia. And these churches had seemingly been swayed and moved away from the gospel that was preached to some other gospel, which Paul says, really not a gospel at all. He says, someone has bewitched you. Someone has steered you off course with the truth of the gospel. Having begun with the spirit, Paul says, are you so foolish now to live by the flesh? Is circumcision your priority now? Is that what you're going to follow? Paul says the just shall live. They shall live by faith. Not by the works of the law. Not by circumcision. Not by anything other than the gospel truth that was preached to you. The believer in Jesus Christ is called to walk 
by faith, to walk, to live by faith, and to stop relying on human philosophies and start relying on Christ. The Bible says that you are complete in Christ, friends. You're complete in him. Colossians chapter 2, 9 and 10. We're called to live by faith in such a way that we actually become fully convinced. Fully convinced. Are you fully convinced? Living by faith means that we are fully convinced each day of our lives that the Lord is going to perform the very things that he's promised. Are you living your days by faith? Holding on to the Lord, trusting in him with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding. The Lord tells Habakkuk that the soul of the proud is not upright, but, there's a contrast, but the just shall live by his, notice that, notice that personal pronoun, his faith. His faith. There's a personal element to this as well. Some of you young people in here, you like it. It's comfortable. It feels good. You like being a part of a body like this. But I want to remind you this morning that you too are called to this faith the Bible speaks of. You must have your own faith, personal relationship. Know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's not enough that your dad and mom knows him. You must know him too. And what a joy it is to know him. Do you know the Lord? Are you going to trust him no matter what the storm in your life? Are you going to wait patiently for the Lord to answer when the enemies of life flood in? The Lord issues in chapter 2 these five woes. I just want to give them to you briefly. 5 through 20. He gives us these. The first one is woe to him who increases what is not his. Verse 6, chapter 2. Speaks to greed. Stealing. The second one is in verse 9. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high. (laughs) That he may build himself up. There's this idea of coveting. The third one is, verse 14. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city with iniquity. We're speaking of murder here. And he says here in this context, he says, Is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? Wasting your time. These people are wasting their time feeding their fire. Why? Verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. They're wasting their time doing all this stuff. Woe number four in verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor that you may look on his nakedness. There's this picture of immorality, this picture of seduction, perversity. And then the last one comes in verses 18 and 19. Woe to him who says to wood, awake to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. This is idolatry, idolatry. So these characteristics of this proud person, greed, coveting, murder, immorality, idolatry. And, you know, he he mentions all of these things. Then he gets to the end in verse 20, and he says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Praise God. By the way, if you have Christ in your life, the Lord is in your holy temple. He has come to dwell in you, in your temple, in this earthen temple, this body, through the Holy Spirit. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You know, what an assurance we have right here. What an assurance Habakkuk receives right here. All these disastrous things may be going on around us. Trials may have this piercing, this menacing stare on us. They might look mighty intimidating. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Amen? Isn't that comforting? The Lord is in his holy temple. Do you believe that this morning, church? He's in his holy temple. If you do believe that, you can wait patiently for him to speak and act. His pattern in the scriptures is to act mightily on behalf of his people. He has a strong arm, does he not? 
His tendency is to work all things together for his good, which includes our good, although we may not in the moment agree that what he's up to is deemed good in our own eyes. But the Lord is in his holy temple. He's in control. And Habakkuk, I believe, firmly holds on to this very truth in the final chapter. Habakkuk chapter 3 is the heart of a man who had once looked at his circumstances and now rests in the Lord for his help. Habakkuk chapter 3 is the counter to Habakkuk 1 where the prophet is looking all around him instead of looking at the Lord. Do you remember that scene in the New Testament when Peter steps out of the boat to the crashing waves and he starts to walk on the water? And you remember, it's not long before he starts to what? Sink. The Bible says he starts to sink. Why? He's looking around him instead of looking at his master. He goes from seeing his dire circumstance to seeing his faithful Lord. That's Habakkuk. That's the picture of Habakkuk here. Listen, this is exactly what happens when you begin to turn your eyes upon Jesus. That song, you remember the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Habakkuk 3 is a prayer a prayer on the Shigianoth. If anybody knows, happens to have any idea, Kalen, if you happen to know a musical instrument, what a Shigianoth is, come see me after we're done. I have, I have no idea what a Shigianoth is. I do know it seems to be some kind of stringed instrument. This is his prayer. I believe it ought to also include and be a part of our prayer, as we'll see here in just a moment. There's two specific aspects of this prayer I'd like to bring forward. One of them is in verse 2. He says, Oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. You hear that? I've heard your speech. I was afraid. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. See, Habakkuk admits that in hearing what the Lord had to say, he was afraid. And yet he's quick to ask God to revive his work in the midst of the years. Revive your work, O Lord. In your wrath, Habakkuk seems to accept the fact that his wrath is being poured out in short order. In your wrath, Habakkuk says and prays, please remember mercy. And much of 3 through 15 in chapter 3. Those verses 3 through 15 recount the ways and the works of the Lord from of old. Revive your work, O Lord. Is Habakkuk's prayer our prayer, church? Is anyone today praying for God's work to be revived in our day? When we read the pages of Scripture, we can see very clearly what God has done. We see in the, in the New Testament, at the end of John's Gospel, we see that Jesus evidently had done a lot more than what John recorded because it says that it would, would have filled volumes if we were to write about all the things that Jesus did. These wonderful works of God. Are we praying that the Lord would revive his work in our day? Are you praying for God's work to be revived in your own life? Is that the desire of our hearts to see God working around us, among us, in us. And you keep reading chapter 3 and you arrive at verse 16. He says, when I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. That I might rest in the day of trouble. Remember we read a week or so ago that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. Here's Habakkuk. His response to hearing from the Lord has been to go to God in prayer. His response has been worship. I 
Habakkuk is resigned that the Lord is indeed going to raise up the Babylonians to come and display his wrath toward his own people. Habakkuk is prayerful, though, that in the midst of his wrath, he would remember mercy. And then there's this final picture in these last three verses. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. The heart of the prophet has changed from chapter 1 to chapter 3, has it not? The trial has not gone away. And yet the heart of Habakkuk has changed. How does this happen? Hearing from the Lord, I believe, is how it happens. Because the Lord says, the just shall live by his faith. Living by faith is predicated on belief and trust in a God who always, always comes through, who's always good, he's always just, he's always in control, he's always at work, who's always awake, he's always present. Thanks be to God that no matter my situation, he knows it. And he has the power to help me go through it. Thanks be to God that no matter my situation, he strengthens me to weather the storm that's coming. He doesn't always rescue me from the storm, but he is always with me in the midst of the storm, church. I think of those three men in that fiery furnace and the king looking through and he sees not three, but four. God's there in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the storm. Thanks be to God that no matter my situation, he is all I need. Though you might lose, we could just contemporize 17 and 18. Though you might lose your job. Though you might lose a loved one. Though you might be going through turmoil in your home. Though you may be at odds with your best friend though you may not be feeling well, though you may not know where your next paycheck is coming from, though you might seem like everything around you is crumbling down, the Lord God is your strength, my friend. He's your strength. Habakkuk's message moves from worrying about your circumstance to worshiping the one who is worthy to be praised. Worry and wait. That wait in chapter one is the weight of his circumstances. Worrying in this weight of his circumstances. It's all Habakkuk can see. It gives way, it gives way to, in chapter two, this idea of watching and waiting on the Lord. Waiting, W-A-I-T, waiting on the Lord, which eventually then leads to worship in a different kind of weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, a different kind of weight, a weight of glory, Lord's glory. We talk about glory. It's placing weight upon something or someone. In this case, Habakkuk is placing his weight now, not on his circumstances, but upon the Lord. And that's what we do, church, when we worship. We are looking to him. The Lord may raise up the Babylonians for a particular purpose, But he reveals to Habakkuk the one thing to be concerned about, rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in the God of your salvation. The just shall live by his faith. And Habakkuk writes these words long before the author and perfecter of the faith arrives on the scene here. I believe Habakkuk's words removes this magnifying glass off of your own circumstance And places it upon the rock, the holy one who resides in his holy temple. You see, we serve a big God for whom nothing is too difficult. The song that we'll close with this morning is written by a man who knew something of earthly pain. He carried a weight 
unimaginable by many of us. While finishing up his work, he receives a message that his daughters had died. Lost at sea. And it was out of the weight of his circumstance as he goes to meet with his grieving wife that he pens these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be Sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll, and the trump will resound. The Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Church, let's understand this morning that it is only through a relationship with Jesus Christ that things can be well with your soul. Horatio Spafford understood that. Many others who have gone before us in the faith have understood that. And I pray that each one here would understand that and grab a hold of that. And as the righteous, as the just, we would do exactly what the Lord called Habakkuk to do. The just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be able to move from our circumstances, the weight of our circumstances, to move in a place where we see Habakkuk in the end of this book. He's, He's worshiping. He's delighting in you. Not because his circumstances have changed, His vision is now changed. He's no longer looking around him, but he's looking at you, Lord. Father, I pray in our day when all this stuff that we talked about earlier going on around us. Father, we would not be swimming in the muck and mire of all this stuff. But we would, as a child of yours, always turn our eyes and fix our eyes upon Jesus, looking unto him. We would watch and wait to hear from you. And then as we hear from you, Lord, our response would be the same as that of Habakkuk. It would be worship, praise, thanksgiving, resting in hope and knowing that we have a firm anchor, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the assurance that you've given to us that no matter what happens to us in this earthen tent here, we have your word that gives us hope and assurance of being with you, of seeing Jesus one day. Now we see, but dimly, but later we are going to be able to see Jesus and to be in his presence. There's not going to be any more tears. There's not going to be any more crying. There's not going to be any more pain. The old order of things has passed away. Behold, all things will become new. 
Father, we rejoice and look forward to that time. In the meantime, I pray that we, like the songwriter, would be able to continue walking through the valley of what may seem like the shadow of death, but we would fear no evil because we know you are with us, your rod and staff, they comfort us. And we'll be able to say that it truly is well with our soul. May that be so for each one here. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.